everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Cup of Nurses podcast. In this episode, I would like to introduce you to Amanda Blackwood. Amanda is an amazing woman that took the time and came on the show to share her story and her experience with human trafficking. Shout out to our sponsors, Liquid IV and BetterHelp. It's never too early, it's never too late to get a therapy session in. Make sure you visit betterhelp.com slash cup of nurses and get a therapy session in today. Also, shout out to Liquid IV. I drink it almost every day. I drink it after I work out. I drink it after a sauna session. I even drink it on the unit. It's important to stay hydrated. I want you all to stay hydrated. Make sure you visit liquidiv.com and pick up your dose today and use code CONPAD at checkout for a little bit of a discount. Don't forget to visit couplenurses.com for any of our updates, all of our show notes, and also check out couplenurses.shop for our latest unit gear and nursing tees. Hey everyone, we've been using Furnish Finder for the last five years. When it comes to travel nursing assignments or long-term vacations, Furnish Finder is a place to go. One of the most trustful aspects about travel nursing is finding housing. There aren't a lot of sites that offer furnished homes for short-term leasing. Furnish Finder has thousands of furnished properties nationwide to meet your every need. If you're looking for a one-bedroom studio to a three-bedroom family home, Furnished Finder has you covered. Travel with a peace of mind with Furnished Finder. Start your search at furnishedfinder.com. Uh, so your son's birthday? Uh, the end of August is, yeah. Oh, end of August, August 31st. Okay. How old is he turning? Oh, uh, gosh. He's going to be 24 years old, and he and his wife just had their first baby. Oh, wow. Well, congrats to them. 24. Uh, I'm 29 now, so we're about five years apart. Oh, wow. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm an old lady. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The thing is that, you know, age, age is just, just a number. You know, it's, it's how they feel. Like, sometimes I'm working out at, at the gym, and I see people, like, in their 60s that are they have six packs. They're like super, super swole. I'm just like, like, how do you maintain this this body? You're you're like 67 years old, and people are walking around with, with abs. I was like, I'm 29. <laughs> I have I, I've had abs maybe for like a year of my life, you know. So it's just, uh, it's it, I think it's more of the way you feel than anything else. You know, just, just a number. Yeah. Yeah. It, my body has kind of, um, it's decided to revolt against me the last 10 years now, <laughs> 10, 15 years. So it's um. I, I, I am definitely feeling my number. <laughs> really? Is it because of the Crohn's or you have other stuff going on? Crohn's disease, thyroid disease, chronic hives. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on steroids right now for the hives and I'm tapering off of them. So my back is completely covered, but everything else right now, I'm okay. And it's, I have, according to my doctor's offices, I have one of the worst cases of chronic idiopathic urticaria that they have ever seen in their Interesting. office. Interesting. It's considered idiopathic. They have no idea where it's coming from. Not maybe some food or anything like that. They have no idea. Definitely not any food. Um, I've had allergy tests and everything done. The only thing that has come up that might be a possibility is my endocrinologist, my thyroid uh, provider, uh, said that there's a possibility that it may be triggered from an extreme exposure to black mold. Oh, wow. So we're looking into that, so the mycotoxins from black mold, and I have a follow-up appointment with her towards the end of this month, actually. Um, hopefully, we'll get some answers on it and figure out what we can do to kind of fix the problem. Yeah, and where does mag- uh, black mold grow? Is that just like on the walls, or where does that even come from? Is it in the water? Uh, it comes typically in the walls, so it's a high-moisture environment. 
And when I first moved out here to Colorado, the shower had some, a little bit of like a spot of black up in the top corner. And in the three and a half years that I lived there, it expanded greatly. And looking back, I think that really was black mold. And I did have an extreme exposure because I was around it every single day. Wow. Interesting. It's crazy how sensitive our, our bodies are. So like, especially with the the autoimmune issues or idiopathic issues, it's like the body attacks itself for whatever reason. And it's it's crazy as as well as it does fight fighting infections, you know, sometimes it just targets targets itself for some for some reason, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean that's what Crohn's disease is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've had I've had some GI issues too because I had a bowel resection a few years ago. Mm. And and coming off out of that, it was it was horrible. I don't wish it on, on anybody. It was like diarrhea all the time you know i couldn't eat certain foods it was like almost like you know how you have, you have a baby and you slowly introduce new foods to them you know through baby oh, yeah. food, all that things it's literally what i was going through i was like i couldn't have anything i used to love spicy food mexican food was always, always my go-to and i couldn't have it for like six months and i was like what's going on and it was just non-stop pain everything everything yes. hurt and it was just it's 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 horrible because it takes away one of the joys in life because we do bring a lot of we do get a lot of joy from food if it feels good and you take that away you know it's almost like you like you chip away at yourself because it, it sucks because oh, you, yeah. you gotta eat bland food and it just it just tastes kind of like pointless you're just eating paper or just eating like plain chicken it's it really takes it really takes a lot of a person so Crohn's is probably yeah. horrible to have my most recent book that came out was actually book number 13 uh it came out in June and it's called Surviving in the Kitchen, Recipes for Life, Love, and a Full Stomach. This is my passion. I love to cook. I love to create. This is like a love language for me. If I cook for somebody, it means I truly care about them and I want to feed them and help to sustain them. And when I first discovered that I had Crohn's disease and was locked down to plain oatmeal and toast without butter, I just, I wasn't sure I wanted to survive. <laughs> it sucked so bad. But being really good and diligent about what I'm eating and taking very good care of myself and working so hard on this, I have fought back so successfully against Crohn's disease and healing the internal trauma. I have fought back so much that basically now I have zero symptoms at all. Okay. That, that's really good news. Yeah. So, so with, with the Crohn's, so what foods do you, do you think, uh, you know, cause you the, the, the most issues and what foods did you have to cut down on that you really found the most relief? The biggest was basically anything that comes from a red animal. So red meat, milk, dairy of any kind, all of that stuff, pork. You know, I know they call it the other white meat, but it's really not. Uh, (laughs) All of these red meats and stuff, they were absolutely killing me. It was causing me so much incredible pain, but I still had a hard time giving up ice cream. And back, you know, then it was 2011, 2012 when I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease, um, Ice cream options were not that great when it came to non-dairy options. You had coconut milk ice cream, and I loved mint chocolate chip. I do not want coconut mint ice cream. That is disgusting. (laughs) And I could always taste the coconut in it. So they've got a lot of really great options now, which is handy. My husband is allergic to whey, so no milk again. Um, I have gotten to where I can actually have regular ice cream once in a while, as long as it's not very often, as often as I would like, uh, <laughs> but he can't. So it helps to keep me on track. 
But he also has this digestive system where if he doesn't eat red meat once in a while, it really screws him up. So because of that, I was starting to incorporate little bits of red meat here and there into my eating. And now I'm back to where I can eat an entire steak. And it's fantastic. And I make a really good steak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like... um. I forgot what, what what it's called. I don't know if it's like desensitization. I know they do this with uh, kids that have peanut allergies where if they have like a really bad allergy, they they give them like milligrams of, of peanuts or, or whatever the, the unit is, but they give them like tiny, tiny amounts and, and see if it produces an allergic reaction and slowly they incorporate more and more over time. And I think that's the success rate. Success rate. I think it's like, it's not real high. It's like 50% or 40%, but it, it, do, it does work for, for, for some people. So maybe you had you were doing something like that without even knowing it. Yeah, it could be. Could be. If that is what did it, then, you know, I'm very grateful because I love steak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, steak is good. Um, I went vegan for, I want to say, almost a year. This was, I want to say, like 2015, 2016. And back then, vegan food was not as access as accessible as it is now. So... I found myself just eating a bunch of carbs. Uh, yeah. I found out that Oreos were technically vegan, so I was eating, eating a lot of Oreos, you know, because they didn't have <laughs> didn't any kind of that. milk in there or anything like that. So half my diet was was basically jackfruit and and, and Oreos. And then um, <laughs> I realized that hey, like this is not really sustainable. Like I gained a, gained a bunch of weight. I wasn't doing it right, you know. But but that was back then. Now you have vegan food everywhere. It's not as hard to you know eat like a plant based diet or a meat free diet. Um, but right. right now I'm doing more of like a keto carnivore kind of thing. I've nice. always, I always enjoy meat. I, I don't, I've liked meat so much. I don't know if it's because I'm Polish. I grew up on meat and potatoes my, mm -hmm. my whole life basically. So I'm just so accustomed to, to eating meat. And um, I did find that flour products like tortillas or if I eat, eat a lot of chips, um, brez, they make me f like feel super, super uh, bloated. And sometimes I have a lot, a lot of gas or some diarrhea like the next day if I eat a lot of pasta and things like that. So for my body, I know naturally I do a lot better of a job of processing meats, meats and fats. And I've learned that over time. So I try to minimize that even though I really enjoy pizza, I know that, hey, maybe I shouldn't do like four <laughs> slices of deep dish. Maybe I'll just do like a slice <laughs> or two, you know. Yeah, I have a salad on the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The, the salad is the green peppers in the pizza, you know. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Honestly, we would all be better off if we paid more attention to that kind of stuff. I mean, we get a pizza here, we just split it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the, I'm the same way. Like, you get, like, a medium, and it's, you're like, you know, I'm only going to have a little bit, no. but, you know, you, you, you can't say no. It's hard to say no, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> Does your son have any uh, sort of, like, GI issues either or, or some uh, foods that he can't uh, necessarily eat? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, my my son's father disappeared illegally with him when he was nine years old. So I haven't actually physically been in the same with, room with him since he was nine. So we have very limited communication. His father, I don't know if it's thankfully or unfortunately, uh, passed away in November of 2020 from a head-on car collision. And it's the first time ever that my son and I have had any kind of open communication which is nice, but we still have to build this this relationship that did not exist for us. Oh wow! And you're saying he's turning 24 now? Yeah. Okay. And then, does he live with you, or do you guys communicate? No. No, he lives in another state. He still lives in the state where his father uh, hid him for all those years, which is Arkansas. Okay, interesting. Um, 
not to get too personal, but do you, do you know why that was why that was happening? What was the dynamics of that? Oh yeah, um, his father and I went through a divorce. His father threatened me and said that if I didn't remarry him and sleep with him every single time I wanted to have any kind of visitation or communication with my son that he was going to disappear with my son. So he held through with his threats because I refused to allow him to rape me. Oh, wow. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. That's that, that's intense. How how did how did you feel during that point? Because there's there's a connection between like a father and, and a son, but the the connection between a mother and her child, it's 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 almost like inseparable in a way because you that child literally grew grew inside of you, right? Uh, and so. I, I always felt like the bond between like a mom and, and the kid was always a lot stronger in a way than that with with the father and, and and a child just because the fact that you know as a mom you got to carry the, the the kid in your body so how did you, how did you feel during that time it it was definitely rough i mean every mother's day every year on his birthday i would end up somewhere in the house in the fetal position bawling my eyes out every year Regardless of how great or how terrible the day was, every day ended the same. My child was not a part of my life. It tore me to absolute pieces. But at the same time, I was struggling so bad just to be able to take care of myself because of everything that I had been going through and everything that I was still going through with human trafficking and everything in my life. I couldn't successfully take care of myself. I had to trust. I didn't have an option. I had to trust that his father would take care of him and provide for him. I didn't have any kind of a choice. Uh, so you, basically you're you're in poverty and in a sense just trying to um, struggle to, to survive, right? Right, right. I was bouncing from one job to another. I was a high school dropout with no college education at all. I was making minimum wage at most jobs. I was living with one boyfriend or another for many years because I had no way to be able to provide for myself. And that's not the kind of a life you want for a child. Yeah. And how did you um, get into that situation? Did, was it did you grew up with a lot of family issues, lack of support? Um, how, how did you end up in that unfortunate situation? That's definitely a big part of it. So with most survivors of human trafficking, we grow up in an abusive environment to begin with. And that leaves us more vulnerable later on to traffickers because we have this need in our life that these traffickers, these these um, uh, predators can see and they promise to fill these vacancies. So when I was four is the first instance I remember ever being uh, molested and that was by my older brother. My father was physically violent. My mother was mentally and emotionally extremely abusive and manipulative. That was my entire family. I was the baby of the family. I was the scapegoat. I grew up feeling like I didn't matter. Um, I didn't have a voice. I couldn't tell anybody about the things that were happening to me. If I ever did try to tell anybody, nothing would happen that would help me. 
And I remember uh, Child Protection Services coming to the house and saying that they saw no signs of abuse. I remember going into foster care, turning 17 years old in foster care, and having the police come and pick me up a couple of days after my birthday and tell this amazing family that I'd been staying with that they saw no signs of abuse and I had made the whole thing up and they took me back home and this family never spoke to me again. So there was this huge lack of everything in my world. I started running away from home at 15. I dropped out of high school the second I turned 18 and I just hit the road. I needed to get out of there desperately. I was ready to end myself when I was 15, 16, 17 years old and I'd never really told anybody that. Yeah, wow. It, especially at, at that age, there's even living a normal teenage life, it's filled with mixed emotions and you're going through everything you went, went through at such a young age. And on top of that, nobody believing you and telling you, hey, this didn't really happen because there, there weren't any any signs. Why do you think that happened? Why do you, How do you think people like yourself kind of fall through the cracks of the system? What do you think was the issue? Was there just no no signs of, of abuse like how, how does that how, how does it how did that come to the conclusion of the conclusion of 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 them not believing that this was actually happening to you? you know i have to say that i think a lot of it had to do with how people present themselves my parents presented themselves as being very confident very capable people my mother is extremely narcissistic to the point where she has manipulated my father very very well I remember one particular instance where I got out of the house and I went down to the park with a couple of friends of mine, a couple of guys, but they were my dearest friends at the time. When my mother found us, she got very upset and angry and demanded that I get into her vehicle. And as we were driving away, she backhanded me and bloodied my nose. She nearly broke my nose. And these two boys immediately went to the nearest house to call the police and tell them what they had seen. And when the police came over, my father made me change out of my clothes because I had blood all down the front of me. Made me change out of my clothes into something clean. Made me clean up my face. Made me be the one to answer the door so that I could, quote unquote, prove that I was actually fine. I had to make these best friends of mine out to be liars to be able to survive that night without a severe beating. It has everything to do with manipulation. The police are absolutely going to believe the parents when there's been 20, 30 different times that Child Protection Services have come out to the house and have constantly said that they've seen no signs of abuse at all. My parents were very careful to not leave bruises on me, especially know where they could be visible. When you're coming up with this kind of stuff, this is, this is a really big deal. Because there's so many kids out there that are constantly being abused and they don't have bruises. And a lot of these kids don't make it to adulthood. So, Amanda, when did you feel that your life was different than maybe the friend, the friends around you? Was it at like an early age? Because when I talk to a lot of kids sometimes that have been abused, like they think that's what's going on in everyone's home. So they usually don't speak up because they think it's just normal. So was there maybe a switch that flipped in your mind that says, hey, you know, what's happening to me here is is not supposed to be happening? 
I think I kind of always had that in the back of my mind. And I think a lot of that actually came from old movies. And I know that might sound a little odd, but I grew up uh, starting at about three or four years old with an absolute obsession with the old black and white films of the 1940s and 50s. And I had these these ideas of what a household was supposed to be like because I loved watching reruns of Leave It to Be For. Loved that show. I thought it was wonderful. They sat down and they talked about their problems. They didn't turn around and smack each other for them. (laughs) That was what I wanted. That was what I was striving and reaching and looking and longing for. And when my life wasn't going that way, I started to think there's there's something wrong because Car 54 and Mr. Ed and all of these great TV shows of the 1950s, I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched of the 1960s, these shows portrayed a normal family life, not anything that resembled my life. And so I started talking about it a little bit with other kids at school, and they started they started telling me that's not normal, that you're not supposed to go through that kind of stuff. That's That's not normal. And I started to feel kind of this deep sense of shame. If this is my life, if this is what's happening to me, I also grew up with my mother telling me that there's always a common denominator, meaning that if something is repeatedly happening, that it's your own fault. I started to believe that if all of this stuff was happening to me, and this was my life, that somehow this was connected to me, and it was my fault. Yeah, that's the, that's the really crazy thing about kids. They're so malleable, where you could almost make them think anything you know it's 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 very sad that people take it take advantage of that when when you left home because you're saying that you had this this idea of what you wanted and you wanted to have a happy family where everybody gets along like like they did in the in the cartoons or, or in the movies is is that something that, that you were chasing when you when you ran away from home absolutely um, the, one of the first times I ran away, I went and stayed with a very dear friend of mine. His mother was a good woman who worked very hard as a police dispatcher. She cooked home-cooked meals. She didn't scream at her son. That's what I wanted. And that home where I was when I turned 17, that foster home, the family that never spoke to me again after that, they showed me family values that I had never seen, even in the TV show. We all had our own little list of chores that we'd go through. Once we got our chores done, then we could go outside and play and we could have fun. And we were given a little bit of shopping money once in a while. We could go to the store and buy maybe some beef jerky or a can of Lipton's iced tea. Uh, <laughs> you know, these these are the kinds of things that kids are supposed to have this opportunity to do once in a while. And what was happening in my household was I had to go home and do my homework and then sit in my room and be quiet and do nothing. And if I made any noise, I would get in trouble. Yeah, there was a huge flip of the coin when I was introduced to this world where these people were kind and gentle and generous and thoughtful. And they watched out for each other and they told each other frequently, I love you, just for no reason at all. I'm giving each other hugs. And they displayed what a normal family, in my mind, should have been. And that's what I started really reaching out for. And that's where people started taking advantage of me for the vulnerabilities. Yeah. When they say that the simple things in life are, are the best, that that holds a lot of value. Like just having a normal, healthy, happy family that people take for granted. If you don't come from that, you understand how precious that is and how amazing that that is 
to have to to grow to grow up and to have that support to have those parents to have those siblings or whatever's in that family a lot of times people take it for granted and they don't look back at that but when you don't grow up with that it just seems like such an amazing precious thing that you you, you believe that everybody everybody should should have in life right absolutely i remember watching some of my friends growing up and them being being able to do things and go places and have these adventures and smiling with their interactions with their families and i remember being jealous and they'd go oh i can't believe my mother is doing this again and it would always frustrate me it's like do you know what my mother did last night no you, you don't want to know what my mother did last night be thankful for what you've got and it's so hard to see that when you're on the inside of your own little world bubble looking out all you see is a parent that's trying to smother you and all i could see was a parent that was trying to love Ooh. yeah and that could that could cause such such trauma and such scars in, in life and throughout life because the, your parents are the ones you rely on for i want to say like the first quarter of your life in, in a sense and the fact that that's in a way severed i'm sure that translates over to the rest of your life probably your future relationships because your parents are supposed to give you this this love and this trust and once that is broken at such an early age because only thing you can depend on is your parents and that's the first person that you could say that you fall in love with that, that you trust and by that happening to you and just by your parents breaking that that trust that that love how did that affect maybe your future relationships how does that maybe stay with you now because i can only only imagine if that happened to me i'd probably have the most severe trust issues i probably wouldn't be able to trust anybody for such such a long time just the fact that just the fact you know going through that having that that trust severed how, how has that maybe changed the outlook of your life or how does that maybe uh, bled into uh, your future or your future relationships after those, those incidents? It's definitely a double-edged sword. So when you grow up in that kind of environment, you begin to learn and to correlate uh, pain with love. So the people who love you are going to hurt you. It is inevitable. And if they don't hurt you, it means that they don't love you. So if they don't abuse you, this isn't a real relationship. So there was that aspect of it. But there was also the, the trust with not being able to share everything with somebody. You know, there's parts of my life now that I still probably haven't even shared with my husband. And that seems weird to me at the moment because I, I've become this person now where I'm very open with him. But it's the first person on the planet that I've ever been able to have that kind of open communication and that trust with. Yeah, and I was 41 years old when I met him. I was constantly feeling like there were parts of me that were too broken or parts of me that could not be honest. I had to hide things that I bought. I had to lie about how much I paid for something. And this was all early conditioning. I had a real problem with shoplifting for a number of years because I had so much stuff taken away from me that if I wanted anything at all, I had to steal it when I was a child. I had everything taken away from me at one point except for a mattress on the floor and a sheet and one change of clothes and a nightgown. When I got home from high school, I'd have to change into my nightgown if I wanted to wash my, 
my one change of clothes, which was a t-shirt and a pair of jeans and a pair of socks. And if I did not do this, then my clothes would stink the next day. And when you're in high school, it, I didn't need to be a fashion icon, but wearing the exact same shirt and jeans every single day to school was doing major damage for me as a person because I was getting severely bullied for it. I was getting beaten up because of wearing the same things every day. So I started stealing from Goodwill stores. I made sure that the pants that I was stealing were tight enough on my body where I could wear them underneath what it was that I had when I went into the store. And I had to do the same thing with t-shirts and stuff. And eventually I started accumulating a little bit more stuff. It wasn't that we were broke. We could absolutely afford the clothes. I couldn't afford the clothes. I was given nothing. So there's this huge part of me that I struggled for so many years on if I got anything at all. I needed to hide how I got it. I had to sequester it away in a closet. I couldn't show what I had. I had to be very careful because if I had anything at all that I valued, it would be taken away from me, always. So how did you slowly get that mentality out of your system? Because going through what you went through, it's almost like you never learn how to properly function in society in, in, in a way, you know, that because you were almost like taught the opposite of what you're, what you're supposed, supposed to know. So how did you over, overcome those things, those, those urges to maybe hide stuff, those, because like you're saying, you, you had to, you had to hide stuff. You had to keep things, keep things secret. And that was like your norm. So how did you finally realize that, Hey, this is something that maybe I should open up about. It's not really that big of a, big of a deal for me to have things. How did you get past those, those barriers? A big part of that was finally having a job where I could support myself. I had worked my way up from the bottom of the totem pole being a mall cop to within five months taking over as a director of public safety and security for six different properties in LA County. I got an $11,000 a year raise. I finally had my own apartment where I didn't have to share my space with anybody. I bought a car on my own. And at that point, I started to see myself as a fully functioning adult for the first time in my life. I was 30 years old then. And at 30, I started to feel like a real human being. That was when this transition first started. I bought this. I've gone, done this. I have this. This is mine. This is my life. This is my space. And I'm okay if I leave it out. I don't have to hide this away in the drawers. This is okay now. And until I could figure out how to really support myself, that kind of mentality was not ever going to go anywhere. It was stuck. It was absolutely stuck, just like the vicious cycles of ending up in abusive relationships. It's all a part of who I was. It was who I was trained to be. And I'm curious, because sometimes what I, uh, what I learned is that people that, in a sense, come from nothing, once they get a job, they develop like shopping addictions, they buy a lot of things. And on the flip side, they they maybe close themselves off for the fear of losing it. Did you uh, experience either any um, either one of those? A big one for me is um, shopping for food. There were so many times in my life where I had to go without food and didn't know when or if I was getting another meal that I started food hoarding. 
I had 10 cans stacked up in the pantry. I always have uh, dried noodles and stuff that has shelf sustainability because I know when things get desperate, I still have this other stuff that I can fall back on. And usually it would be stuff that I don't necessarily even like, but there was a reason for that too, because I knew that if I didn't necessarily like it, I wasn't necessarily going to eat it unless I absolutely desperately needed to. And it kind of branched out from there a little bit. Definitely started with the food, still stays with the food. I still do this with food and I'm trying to curb myself a little bit even now. But I also have this absolute obsession still with the movies from the 1940s and 50s. So I have a huge collection of museum quality antiques from the 1940s. And I will actually wear these dresses and shoes and handbags and hats and gloves and just absolutely gorgeous stuff just for the occasional photo shoot. And then I, I tell myself when I buy this stuff that I'm just going to turn around and sell it again after I get the photos. I never do. I've got a <laughs> massive closet over here completely filled with all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's like your little inner child in, in a way. Like the... Yeah. Like, like your happy inner child, you know, you found a lot, a lot of joy in that, then you know you still do have a lot of joy in that. Absolutely. I never got a chance to play dress up as a kid, so I play dress up as an adult. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Hey, it still works, you know. Since you since you like like older movies, I'm curious, have you watched The Sound of Freedom? I know it's not an older movie, but... I have not, and I have so many reasons why. For one thing, they're, they're, they open it up with a kidnapping scene, Right. And these kids are kidnapped. That makes up about 1% of all human trafficking cases. They are playing up on stereotypes and sensationalizing the stories. And when they do this, they're actually doing more harm than good to the true stories of the real survivors. Since this movie came out, I have had multiple key people come and verbally attack me and tell me that my story is not trafficking because it didn't happen the way that it showed it in the movie. I was trafficked by people I already knew and trusted and loved, which is the majority of cases. It is. Okay, so they took a little bit of a of a, of a different spin to make it, you could say, a little bit more more dramatic in, in, in a sense. I, right. I, I did see it. Um, I was a fan of it just, just because I, I was a fan of it because I feel like anything that spreads the knowledge of this, this, this happening, I feel like it's very valuable because you don't really see movies like this even though it didn't um, it didn't choose the more popular aspect of, of of human trafficking i feel like they the fact that they just made a movie about this i feel like it does have some 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 value and you were saying that it human trafficking usually starts with with, with, the, with the family so the human trafficking for you start when you when you ran away from home how did how did that actually um start happening did you maybe use sex as a way to to make money how did that happen in your life well, um, it's also important to recognize that only one quarter of all victims of human trafficking are under the age of 18. I was actually 18 the first time I was trafficked. And this man that I had been dating was uh, more than twice my age. He was one of the predators who saw that I had a vulnerability and a need in my life, and he promised to fill that need. The biggest one that I had at the time was I needed shelter, and I needed desperately needed somebody to love me. So he promised me these two things. Once he had me completely dependent on him, he felt like, okay, now I can start getting her to do whatever I want her to do. And he loaned me out as a trade favor for his best friend's birthday party. 
was locked up in a hotel room in Las Vegas for 52 hours and repeatedly assaulted. At the end of the 52 hours, we went back to where I was living at the time, which was Arizona. And I grabbed my stuff and I left as quickly as I could. I found a place to go and I left. But that doesn't sound like what you hear or what you see when you see these movies about human trafficking. So it's important to also define what human trafficking is. So this isn't something that I would suggest anybody Google or look up on Wikipedia because these are fallible resources. You want to look somewhere like the Department of Homeland uh, Defense or the Department of Homeland Security. They define human trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or sex acts from another person. So if you notice, there's no mention of transportation, even though our brains think traffic means trafficking, like being out on the street. There's no mention of money. So prostitution does not equal human trafficking and vice versa. And there's no mention of... Um... Oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so anyway, you can see where I'm going with this. Um, there's, It's a very um, open definition. It's totally different from grabbing some kid off the street and forcing them into commercial sex acts. I was repeatedly raped. I was not out there acting as though I was a prostitute who was eager to earn money. I was locked into a small hotel room and told if I left this hotel room, I wouldn't be able to get back in because I didn't have a room key. I couldn't have my driver's license. They had a control over it. I couldn't get back to where I was living and get my stuff ever again. And I had very little things at the time, but I still wanted my things. I had to put up with what was being done to me for 52 hours to have a shot to get back. But at that point, I had been molested and raped at a public swimming pool by a stranger when I was 12, by an uncle when I was 13, by friends that I thought were my friends when I was 15, 16. I was raped at 17. I had already been through so much that I thought to myself, it's only 52 hours. I've been through worse. I can get through this too. And that's such a dangerous mindset that we have. So I was trafficked three to four times in my life. The second time was when I was 19, when a pair of landlords sold me as a commodity to a guy named Esteban, who was then going to pass me on to somebody else. Just sold us as basically essentially a slave. The third time I was trafficked, I was 31 years old. So this was after I had finally established myself in the world and had a solid, steady job. I had been in a long distance relationship with this man for seven years. He lived in Scotland. I lived in California. He asked me to get a fiancé visa and move to Scotland to be with him. And I dropped everything. I quit my job. I sold my car, got rid of my apartment, and I jumped on a plane and flew to Scotland. And the first seven days were wonderful, but it only took him seven days to start trafficking me after taking seven years to get me there. He was a police officer. Wow, that's that's deep. That's a lot to un unravel there. It almost, it almost seemed like in your life it just happened everywhere. It's like a common occurrence. Right. And that has to do with building up these neurosynapses when you go through trauma. You know, you start to, your brain becomes involved with the survival side of things. Rather than living, rather than having a day-to-day -day life experience, you're constantly in survival mode. 
And when this happens, you learn to be really hypervigilant. You're paying attention to everybody around you. And people confuse hypervigilancy with um, um, the empathy. You're not really that, you don't have that depth of empathy. What you have is trauma response called hypervigilance, where you pay attention to every single person in the room. You think that you are empathic because you can read the moods of other people when really what your brain is doing is telling you that person is dangerous. Figure out why so that you can try to control the situation. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's intense because like you're saying, they, the hypervigilance isn't there from the empathy. It's the fear of of what that person can can do to you. That's why you're. That's why the hypervigilance happens because there's this so such a deep issue with, with with trust and who to trust. Where you're hypervigilant of, every, of everybody because you understand that potentially everybody is a threat in a, in a way. Right. And if you don't figure out which one is the greatest threat, you're not going to be able to keep yourself safe. This is what your brain is telling you. Well, yeah, that's. That's some some deep psychological psychological work. I'm, I I don't know a lot of people. I've heard people say this uh, many times that people would would say, "Oh, well, you could have just just left. Why didn't you leave?" But the thing is, is when you go through all this kind of stuff and you're always in this fight or flight, when you're always trying to, like you said, survive instead of live, and this is all, all you know, you can't just you can't just leave. It's, it's, it's not it's not how it works, you know. Okay. Because I hear people saying that a lot, like, oh, they could have just left. They put them in this situation. I mean, no, it's not. It's really not how it is because it's such a deep psychological thing. And you're just trying to survive where leaving isn't isn't always an option in, in, in a sense. Like, you, you can't see leaving as an option because what's out there could be even worse. You, you're going through all through all this, but at least you're, you're surviving. You have food. You have a place. Out there, if you do decide to leave, it could get so much worse. You could be outside and the same thing could be could be happening to you. Right. So when I moved to Scotland, it was January and there were six foot snowbanks everywhere. If I had just left that place and moved out and decided to wander on my own, first of all, he was a police officer, so there's no help from the police. And he also had my passport, my debit card, my credit card. I had nothing to say who I was. I would have gotten out there been able not been able to obtain any resources or help and i would have frozen to death and that was my options when i did finally get away from this guy in scotland i got back to the u.s just because i got away from him doesn't mean that that's where it all ended i was constantly hunted he came to the u.s looking for me and i saw him through the peephole banging on the neighbor's door because he had my address off by a single number he hunted me and when that wasn't enough, he'd find out where I was working or who I was friends with. And he would share all of these photos and videos that he took of me being raped repeatedly while I was in Scotland. And he would email them to these people. And he would say something in that email about, I wouldn't want this in my life, would you? I lost friends. I was fired from jobs. I was constantly hunted for years. And this whole time I was living in California. Finally, in 2016, I packed up. And I moved to Colorado and I'm thinking, I can start over. I'm just going to get away from all of that mess. He'll never find me again. But this is social media age, so that doesn't really happen anywhere either. People can still find you. And he was constantly linking my social media and my personal information, all of this stuff, to 
whatever it was that he was sending out or posting, he started posting this on photo sharing websites. It became absolutely awful. He was destroying my life over and over and over and over again. In 2019, I discovered that this man made me famous on a pornography website. He had taken all these photos and videos and put them up on a porn site and included, again, my social media so that total strangers could find me and stalk me. I was recognized in a grocery store and asked for my autograph from being in a rape video on a pornography website. That's when I started digging a little deeper. I discovered that more than 85% of modern pornography is created using victims of human trafficking just like me. 85%. That's massive. That's a huge number. So I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization out here. Uh, they immediately paired me up with pro bono legal services to try to fight this happening. And they started asking that these different pornography websites take down these videos and photos. And they, they did. But every time one went down, two more went up. And I was fighting an uphill battle. So I reached out to another anti-trafficking organization. They paired me up with a therapist. I traumatized this woman so much that she left the industry forever. So they paired me up with another therapist. This one actually had experience of working with other survivors of trafficking. And when I went in to see her for the first time, I told her, I said, first off, do not come at me with prescription medication right off the bat. I don't want a Band-Aid. I want a shovel. And second, do not treat me like I am some fragile porcelain doll. If I was going to break, I was going to do it already. Let's get busy. Until I was ready to take these steps, my life was never going to change. I was going to constantly be that victim. I was constantly going to be attacked and victimized and brutalized. I was going to keep losing jobs. I was going to keep losing friends. And it did keep happening over and over and over again. And eventually when I learned how to speak up for myself, that man became more afraid of me than I ever was of him. But it wasn't going to happen until I found that strength within me to start learning how to fight back. It doesn't end just because you leave. It never ends just because you leave. You will be hunted, but you have to own it. And until you own it, they can use it against you. Yeah, wow, oh, man, it's, it's, it's very, very powerful what you're just saying right there. That's... I can't. I can't even even imagine the the emotions you went through, um, just you know over the last couple of years, just having somebody come up to you asking for an autograph and just, I'd be reliving. I'd be reliving every single moment prior to that happening. And it's crazy that you're saying is like these people, they come after you, they they literally try to take your whole life away from you because it wasn't enough. They they want more. It's such. It's such like a psychopathic tendency where I don't, I'm not even, even sure where that comes from or how to, how to explain it. I'm not even sure how people are, are capable of, of, of doing those things. But with a man, you taking the, the steps to get into a better situation, what steps did you take? What did you find uh, most helpful? Was it speaking up about it? Was it seeing a therapist? What really, what really helped you? What really facilitated you just feeling better about yourself and just feeling like you have some control over this this life you were giving in a sense the first step was definitely the therapy the second step i would say was probably uh, taking the time to write my story 
So towards the end of therapy, it was uh, November of 20, yeah, November 2020. My therapist asked me, you know, I don't think that there's much more that I can do to help you. You've, you've overcome all of these hurdles, but I know you well enough now to know that you're not going to stop your journey here. So what are you going to do next? I told her, I said, I think I'm ready to write my book finally. And she reminded me, she's like, well, you've already got several books, right? And, well, yeah, but they're, they're all pretty small. Okay. I said, I haven't written the book. I've never talked about Scotland. I've never told anybody what really happened when I was there. And she said, okay, well, um, Christmas is right around the corner. How about we team up again in January and I'll check in with you and see how it's going. So early January, she reached out to me and she said, so how's it going? And I said, oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? She said, no, that's not what I asked. I said, how's it going? How's the book going? And I told her, I said, I, I finished it. I was working two full-time jobs at the time. And she said, how did you get it done? I said, how do you not get it done when it's finally ready to come pouring out of you? It was a 360-page book. I don't know, undertaking. It was the largest book that I had written to date at that point. I was really proud of myself. I just got it all out. And it didn't matter if I was going to publish it or not. The release for me was getting all of this poison that was inside of me that I was carrying, putting it down on paper and being able to walk away from it. I gave it a physical body separate from my own so that I could leave it on the shelf and walk away. It ended up getting published uh, on my 10-year anniversary of freedom from trafficking, which was June 19th of 2021. And a month later is when I met my husband. If I had not gone through the process of writing this entire book and getting all of this garbage out of me, I would not have this fun functioning relationship that I have now. And a shameless plug here, where can I get the book? Is that on Amazon? Do you have a website? I do have a website. It's available on Barnes & Noble online. Um, my book, that one, is called Custom Justice. And you'll see half of my face on the cover of the book um, because we only show one half of who we are to the outside world, kind of little, little uh, personal story there with the, the book cover. Um, but my website, growthfromdarkness.com, you can actually order a, a signed copy directly from me from the website. And Amanda, now, if you don't mind touching about your current relationship with, with your husband, is there some struggles that, that you still go through with, with your whole uh, life experience? Um, maybe what have you learned in having a successful relationship? You know, there was something that just recently came up that kind of surprised me. And it's how we respond to um, a crisis. Whether it's a small crisis or a big crisis, it doesn't matter. How we respond to a crisis. His reaction confuses me because my brain can't make sense of it. He's very calm, cool, collected. Well, I suppose we'll get through this too. Meanwhile, I'm over here trying to circle up the wagons because I'm afraid that all hail is coming down on our heads and we're going to burn to death. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm in crazy mode trying to organize everything and get everything done all at once because I don't have a choice. And he sees it as, we've got time, we've got a choice, we'll get through it, we'll be just fine. And it just throws my brain off. <laughs> but probably the biggest thing for being able to make this such a functioning, happy, healthy relationship is our level of communication. He read 
my full autobiography before we ever got engaged to be married. He knew the dirt. He knew the deep, dark underbelly of everything that I had been through. And he made the solid choice to love me in spite of it all. Because he knew that there was still somebody underneath it all who wanted to be loved and needed that communication and that connection with another person. And he chose to be that person. And that's huge. Yeah, that's amazing. You need somebody that, that fully understands you. And one of the best ways to understand you is, is you know, reading your book, going through your past, and the fact that you know that he's okay with all this. I'm sure that that means so much because I I haven't had it, things happen to me similar to you, but I did I did have my issues growing up as well. And there and you really do feel broken. You feel like you're unaccepted. You feel uh, worthless. You feel useless. And you have to almost, in a sense, you almost need somebody to almost like trust you times two. You need like that greater trust in in, in a way because you never feel. Like, like, like you're enough. And then you finally slowly start to realize that, hey, you know, I'm just as good as any, anybody else. So you really need somebody to really be able to unpack your your baggage in a sense and get through it because it's not something that you're going to be able to hide forever. Because right. if you're going to hide it forever, then you're basically still doing what you have been doing for the for your, your, your whole history. You need a unpackage that and you have to be able to give your true self to that person and that person has to has to accept you if, if they don't they don't you know there's nothing nothing you can do about it but only be only way for you to be happy is if you unbox yourself and that that person does the unboxing and they're okay with, with whatever's inside right absolutely and anybody who says or thinks i don't need to share this part of my past because it's all in the past it will always be a part of who you are and it is so important to be able to share that with the special people in your life, whether that's a best friend or a husband or a wife. It doesn't matter who that person is. If they are that important to you, then it is that important that they understand this because otherwise they're never going to understand how to avoid your triggers and how to avoid hurting you in repeated ways that you are so quick to recognize. You can blame them for everything that everybody else has ever done if you're not careful. You've got to share this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. That's it's really strong because it's almost like you owe it to yourself and you also owe it to them because how can they understand or how can maybe they change without knowing what happened? Like if, if you're upset about something that they can't understand why you're upset about, how are they ever going to understand why you're upset if you don't if you don't tell them the history or, or or the story of what has happened? You have to be able to explain to somebody, hey, I feel this way because of this, this, and that. And that's when they finally realize, okay, now I now I understand why you why you feel this, and then they could change or, or they can help you through it. Otherwise, they're just looking at a blank slate and they're always questioning about why this, why that. As humans, we we have this need to understand. Once you understand something, then we could change, then we could, you know, better our lives or we could live a little bit happier. Right. And you don't want the people that you love feeling like they have to walk on eggshells around you because that's not allowing them to really be themselves either. You know, you should both make sure that you have the availability emotionally to be yourselves. And if you're not there, you don't need to be in a relationship. Yeah, wow, it's, 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 
your, your life's crazy. Like I don't I don't know any other any other way to word it. I hope you don't don't get offended by me saying that, but you you you've been through a lot. Like I don't I don't know. Like I went through my share of things, but you, but hearing what you went through, it's like you feel like my life has been perfect in, in a way, you know. <laughs> but trauma changes who we are. It changes who we are fundamentally. The main first step of dealing with trauma is going through the grieving process because you have to grieve for the person that could have been and would have been had you not gone through the trauma. That person is no more. Your entire life has completely changed. It doesn't matter. Um, we can try to compare traumas all we want, but it doesn't, that, that holds no bearing. It holds no weight because I can't grieve for the person that you were going to be. Only you can do that. You have to go through your own process. And going through that process is part of healing. You can't really compare your trauma to anybody else's. All you can say is, I went through some stuff and I'm better now. Wow. That, now, now I'm curious, would you, uh, if you go back in time, would you change anything that that's happened to you in your life? I would not. And that took me a long time to figure that out. I am who I am. And, you know, it, we grow up constantly hearing the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But that's such a lie. Frederick Nietzsche came up with that phrase in the 1800s, shortly before he died in an insane asylum. We can let that one go. We have that strength in us. It is not our abusers. It is not our abuse. It is not our circumstances. It is not our traumas that make us stronger. We are that strong. We just have to dig deep. We have to grab that shovel and not that Band-Aid. And we have to dig deep and find that strength within us to get through it. Stop giving credit to the abusers or the abuse or the circumstances or the traumas. They don't deserve it. You do. You got through it. Yeah, well, yeah, that's intense. What did you find uh, most helpful, I, I would say, getting over things? Was it just uh, speaking to people or just being being honest with what happened in your life? I had a lot of fear when I first started talking about my experiences, and I thought people were going to judge me, and they were going to be harsh, and they were going to shame me. And what I discovered instead when I first started talking about it was that I had this huge community of people that were coming around me and going, oh my gosh, please tell me more. What can we do to help? And that gave me the strength to start opening up more and more. So when I first started talking about it, it was like there was this little mouse in me that was trying to talk about it. And it was all quiet and very shy and uh, easily manipulated into not talking about certain things. And eventually I found that there was actually a lion in my lungs. It was just aching to get out. And the more I got talking about it, the stronger I got talking about it, the more people wanted to come and support me. That was huge. Having that sense of community, that was probably one of the biggest encouragements that I had. Have you ever thought about maybe doing like a like support groups or anything like that? I have a trauma recovery mentorship that I do. Um, I do offer group recovery group uh, settings where we can do this online or in person if people are here in Colorado. I, I love doing this kind of stuff. And I have very strict rules about no trauma vomiting. So you can talk about, you know, I survived human trafficking. You do not want to talk about I survived 
uh, rapes and molestations on this date and this date and this date and this date by these people and these people and these people. Trauma vomiting is very dangerous because you can trigger other people around you into having an absolute meltdown of PTSD because they're being forced to remember what happened to them. So group settings are great as long as the majority of the people in the group setting are in the same area of recovery. Yeah. And it just makes them feel better just just, just talking about it, right? Having people around them just be able to relate because right. it, it you made it seem like it does does happen a lot, but people probably just, you know, they, they don't know. And same with everything. If, for example, that's why the AA meetings are done in groups as well, because if more people talk about it, you realize that you're not the only one. Right. Right. Exactly. And having that sense of community is huge. That's actually why I started my podcast in the first place in 2020 when everything shut down. I had been a member of a small group of survivors here in Colorado that were meeting once a week and doing a life skills class or an art class or something fun. And we didn't have to talk about what it was that we had gone through. Just being in a room filled with other people that we knew had been been through something similar was enough. Hey, look, I'm not alone. All these people have been through this stuff. We don't have to talk about it to recognize that, but we can talk about the stuff that we're doing instead. That sense of community is huge. Well, man, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. Um, if anybody wants to speak to you or get to know you a little bit more, uh, where can they find you? Just head to growthfromdarkness.com. There's a contact form on there. There's also all of my social media stuff. If you click on the Facebook one, I'm very active on Facebook, probably too much. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> thank you, man. And for all the listeners, I'll put the links on the bottom of the show notes and on the descriptions. Once again, man, thank you so much for your time. I really learned a lot on our our conversation i really thank you for your time because you have definitely opened up my eyes eyes a lot we hear a lot about people on the news going through these crazy life stories crazy situations but getting the firsthand account from it it's definitely a lot more meaningful a lot a lot lot stronger so i really appreciate you opening up and sharing your story with me absolutely thank you so much for having me oh i gotta go I've been working, told him, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bruh, just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my.